0: This is Charlie. This is the podcast To Hell Is Back. And uh, it's May 20th. I know that because it's one week after my birthday. So for the next few weeks, I'll always be, that's how I'll remember the dates. And, um, um, and I'm in Northampton, Massachusetts. And I have a guest today joining me, a friend, is Catherine Patrick, who is uh, here for. I'll let her introduce herself in a minute. Where she's from, um, and uh, I just want to say that there's also um, on today, and on I think usually is Abby Ingbar, who is the uh, director, executive director of NEA BPD, which is like our co-organization. Well, no, I guess I'm not an organization, but. She's our co-host or co-sponsor. I don't know what she is, but she's uh, head of NEABPD. And this has always been associated with NEABPD and attainable on its website, among other places. So welcome to Abby and everybody else from NEABPD. Um, And, uh, yeah, so that's it. So let me get us started. And, you know, by getting us started, I want to first... I mean, the topic for today, hmm, it's hard to say where it's grown out of, but in a way, it doesn't matter, because all of us, it grew out of situation, different situations that affect every one of us, which is the, uh, the life in the pandemic. And it affects every one of us profoundly, but it affects every one of us differently, and some things the same, but it affects every one of us. It's one of those rare moments I think in our lives that um, something affects all of us, that, you know, some change in one strand of RNA in China when a bat transmitted it to a human, presumably, after it changed inside a bat. And if you understand what viruses are, it's just that boundary between life and inanimate life because it isn't really a living thing by definition. But on the other hand, it gets into living things and it generates itself, uh, as we all know. And, but, but that little biological event in one cell in China, look what's happened. Like that change, which then can affect another cell in the same person probably, and a third cell in that same person, and in particular respiratory cells, cells in the epithelium of respiratory parts of our bodies. I mean, it's like unbelievable that this one little thing, but it's like an example of interdependency, that one little change in one little cell, in one little strand, in one little nucleus in China, by now has changed our lives. Because of that, we're having this right now. Because of that, I have a longer beard than I've had since I was probably 25. And because of that, I know my dogs better than I've ever known them. And because of that, I know my wife better than I've ever known her. And I've had more to do with my children who are adult children who can't live in our house, but more interact. I mean, and then everything, and, and it's true for every one of you, but you can name about 400 things that actually are different because of this one little strand of RNA. I mean, I don't want to just keep going over that. It sort of would sound deadening and boring if I were you. But to me, it just, I can't get over it. What an incredible thing it is. And yet when I think about it, how actually it's not that incredible. It's normal. It's what its what happens because of one thing. It's that butterfly effect. that everything around the world changes eventually because of one bat- butterfly flapping its wings somewhere. But this is sort of more obvious. So... That's why we're here in this particular conversation, which I call lessons from the pandemic, which basically is a topic that allows Catherine and me to talk about whatever we want about the pandemic and how it has led us to have certain thoughts. And this gives us a chance just to share those thoughts. And we're certainly not alone if you go around the Internet where people are producing content all over the place about how to cope with the pandemic. And there's wonderful stuff out there. And some of it's very specific and some of it's general, some of it's based on DBT and DBT skills. I've listened to podcasts myself that are about that, that are really good. Um, This is a little different in that we're not here to teach any particular skills. We're not here to say, okay, use this, 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 and this in order to cope with this. On the other hand, We'll probably dip in and out of that just by our own reflections of what we've ha- of how we are coming to grips with this ourselves. So I hope it's useful to some people listening. So having started there, um, just to lay the groundwork a little bit about what we're doing, I want to introduce Catherine and ask her to introduce herself a little bit. I mean, let me let me say it in a sort of. Mm. In the way I feel it, but it isn't exactly like a normal introduction, Catherine. Catherine, I feel like is, even though we've known each other for a good while now and we've worked together, um, I feel like she's like a new friend. Uh, that's also in some ways a result of the pandemic. I don't know. It isn't just that, but we've been talking and sharing observations. And um, uh, so I'm just really happy that we can do this. She's also Going to teach an intensive DBT training with me, starting in July. That was to be based in Brooklyn, but now it's virtual online training. And if any of you are interested in that, who are DBT therapists or in teams, you know, you can check it out at my website. Just go to the events on charlieswenson.com, and it's uh, it's a it begins in um, like the third week of July for five consecutive. Weeks, there'll be one day each week. Because let me tell you, if you have tried to do five days in a row of seven or eight hours, looking at your goddamn little screen constantly, you have no idea what it will do to your brain. You will never be the same again. It's just so deadening. So um, we're trying to make it less deadening and more absorbable. And actually, we're trying to take advantage of what's an advantage of spreading this over several weeks. So that's gonna be fun for us. So Catherine, would you say a little about yourself and then we'll lead into whatever, wherever we're gonna end up talking about this.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> well, hi all. It's nice to be joining you here, Charlie, and all of the listeners, both those are here now and we'll listen later. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess a little about me. I, I'm here in Denver, Colorado, this is my home where I grew up um, and I now I work here. I run a private practice. I do DBT in my private practice here in Denver and, um, and a various number of different other hats that I wear. I'm a trainer and a teacher. I teach at the University of Denver here in their uh, graduate school of social work as well. And, um, and then I've got two young kiddos that I'm raising with my husband, Adam, who's also on listening here today. Um, And so I've got, uh, uh, well, now he's eight, an eight and a six-year-old at home who are doing homeschool with my sister, who's also joining here today, who is now living with us. As a result of the pandemic, uh, our family has grown and our household is bustling and all of that. So that's a little about me.
0: What, to, to, what, if, what has, obviously, you've already said these huge things that have changed for you. By the way, just even knowing you adds to my gratitude that I don't have young children at home during this <laughs> period of time. So thank you for that. I mean, it's like uh, I realize no, I have a 21-year-old and a 25-year-old boy, and they come buzzing around sometimes, but they're living separately from us, and they socially distance from us. Mm-hmm. And it's just not the same as having a two little kids I mean I used to do webinars at home in situations like this and my kids were like the age of your kids and I'd be trying to teach and they'd be crawling under my chair I mean they'd be going oh. back and forth and and trying to see if it disrupts my teaching <laughs> so, oh my gosh
1: I have absolutely had that experience many times well I'm sure you've I've had meetings with you interrupted by my kiddos before and, and, and online, um, I've had that happen many times my kids busting in the background of my screen but fortunately tonight they are i believe watching dino dana with their auntie so that's much more interesting than mama
0: Mama on a podcast absolutely yeah Uh, you know after years of doing these podcasts my 21 year old asked me about last week like i've done them for three years or so and my 21 year old who's who has lived at our house most of that time in the basement in his own cave said hey dad do you do podcasts i said yeah he said wow what are they about and i told him and then he has a girlfriend who is going to do counseling with people with addictions and said could we listen to your podcast i said yeah so it was kind of cool you know you generate stuff for three years so You know, who knows? You might even affect your children, you know, but not, yeah, but not, it's not up, not at six and eight. You're, you're a poor competitor, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah, I'm not nearly as interesting as
0: they get enough of you. Yeah. Um, Let me just um, say a couple things and then invite you to just join in also. Um, I'll tell you, my experience of this um, pandemic. Uh, at first, when I think it's so different than everything else, before I think about the fact in other ways, it's the same as everything that happens. In that, um, like I introduced things, this one thing happened with a virus. The virus spread to other cells in one person. That Those cells burst with viral particles, which went to other cells, which burst with virus particles, which went to other cells which really was devastating for this individual. And then it got to another individual, so-called human-to-human transmission. And then it went to another individual, another individual. And then it's sort of like there, I mean, if you think of it that way, because really what you want to think about when coping with this pandemic is never to forget. Really, you want to think about this from the point of view of as if you are a cell coping with virus particles. I mean, that's where your brain should be, to be thinking of how to respond to be safe And that's been said a thousand times in the public, but there's some people who don't think that way or don't get it that way. It's a very basic biological process, and there are basic things to do to protect yourself. Um, Basically, that you don't let the virus get into your respiratory cells. It's in a way as, as complicated and as simple as that. And as a result of that, as a necessity, we end up with, I think, categories of people around the world. Category number one, people who get infected. And they, as a result of this virus, are having one whole set of experiences. Category number two, people who are close to those people. They're having a whole set of experiences. Category number three, those who are trying to take care of those people. Those people who are on the front lines, basically, who are staring down this virus in the situation of people in hospitals, nursing homes, prisons, in our cases also residential treatment programs that I consult to, uh, community group homes that I consult to. It's like, you know, so it's, it's all those people who are trying to take care of the people who have that and take care of the people who are close to the people who have that. Those are like three categories of the people who are all sort of on the front lines of this battle and then there's everybody else in different postures, one step or more removed from the front lines, but constantly affected and changed and, and whose, whose way of being is different than, than all of these other people. And I'm one of those up to now. I've consulted with, I've treated, I've dealt with people who are on the front lines, uh, people who are next to people on the front lines, but so far uh, I've not been sick. So far, no one in my family has been sick. Uh, So far, nobody I know personally has died, but I've known people who know people who have died and whose lives are now inalterably changed. Um, But, you know, so I feel I'm in that last category, and that's probably the majority category. Um, And it's a complicated category to be in, I find, um, because, you know, I feel like I should be on the front lines and I'm 71 years old as of last week. And I'm in some ways, in some places around here, not even allowed to be on the front lines if I even tried to rush in and take care of people. Um, so it's complicated, because then there's the feeling of guilt uh, and I should be there. Uh, and so that, that's complicated. And then also learning to live with such different rhythms. So the first thing I would highlight about the impact of this pandemic is that uh, the degree to which there is uh, um, extraordinary level of interdependency in the world, that the boundaries between us, uh, which we conventionally respect, are just that. They are constructs, they're constructs, they're ideas that there's this boundary between me and you, but then what about the virus? The virus doesn't respect that boundary and in fact When there's a change in you, there's a change in me. When there's a change in somebody in Wuhan, China, there's a change in me. And therefore, this idea that I am a separate being, that I am a being that with an independent, essential self at my core, which you could find if you knew how to do anatomy and knew how to get inside there and say, there's Charlie Swenson, there it is, there's the essence, there's the unique being, there's the self, you'd find it, you know what, it's made up entirely of of non-Charlie Swenson. It's made up of everybody else. It's made up of you guys actually by this point, even right now, even in these few minutes. So um, it's like you, it really reminds you that we're extraordinarily interdependent, that boundaries are in some ways helpful, um, but they're kind of a conventional construct. But actually, if you just drop that notion and realize we're all just, you know, we're in the same ocean. And we're jostling around and things are traveling among us that are affecting us every minute and that we in some ways cannot fairly claim anything as our own. Even our last thought, even these gestures probably came from my grandparents or great grandparents or my father or other people that, uh, you know, I don't even know. So, you know, I can't really, so it's kind of like, how do you live once you let go of this conventional concept? And, and well, I, and I think there are ways to live. You realize, okay, that's the case. And therefore I'm in, a, I'm in a jostling sea of activity and changes, and every change affects every other change, and every other change affects me, and I affect everybody else. So it's transactional, it's constantly transactional. So these are concepts, but for me, They're not the specific skills of DBT, but there are things I'm aware of that thinking that way, that there is entire interdependency, that there's transactionality between people, uh, that there's constant flow between people, that there's no essential self uh, that isn't uninteractional with other people. And therefore, um, can I just acknowledge that? Or does that make me psychotic to acknowledge that? Because it is kind of like, it can kind of make you a little bit crazy when you start giving up the idea you have a boundary on a separate self. And so I find though that that's the beginning of where I go when it comes to the pandemic. And I realized I'm getting to know my dogs better because of a virus that emerged in China. Like, is that crazy or not? I mean, and, and not only that, I'm, I'm more with my wife in the house. And which exposes me to the fact, as I was telling Catherine earlier today, that I said to my wife last night, imagine, honey, if you were a person, a man, who likes to talk with somebody um, way more than that other person likes to talk back. Like imagine if you're somebody who likes to have dialogue about lots of things, and the other one actually just doesn't have that same kind of need in their brain that one needs more silence imagine that poor dude what, you know that he's so starved for conversation and she said yeah it's a good point imagine a woman that is shacked up with a guy because of the coronavirus who talks all the time you know and who actually likes a lot of silence like wow tough thing yeah right all of this because of the virus You know, it it sort of gets you to know things that you didn't know about your relationship as clearly. So anyway, just lots is happening because of this virus. And I think that it is, from my point of view, is skillful to look under the surface of our usual conventional things and look beyond the specifics of some of the DBT skills and just recognize reality in its kind of tumultuous interdependent nature. And to me, that... Strangely enough, somehow helps me. Just kind of go go with the waves, rather than try to go as if the waves aren't around me, as if I could be independent of all of that. So I'll just be quiet, Catherine. I wonder kind of where you go with any of that, or not, or something else related to what you're going through.
1: Yeah, you know, I as you were talking, I was thinking of um, I had kind of a little image developing in my mind of exactly that, like sort of the waves, the way that everything is sort of shifting. And I think there's, at least for me, I, I think this experience has brought to the surface like the, um, the reality of interdependence that I think I've always understood, or not always understood, but certainly in my training have come to understand on a very intellectual level. But at this point, given the dramatic change in lifestyle, it's hard to not be more keenly aware, even in my own body, more keenly aware of how connected I am to so many other people and things that I never even had really awareness of before. And it's funny because I um, I was thinking about, earlier today, I was thinking like, what exactly was kind of the first moment of all of this you know, me personally experiencing that pandemic. And it was, I think about a week before, maybe a few days before my kids' school closed. Cause my kids' school closed really early um, because one a, a parent of one of the kids had, had um, been diagnosed with coronavirus. And um, my sister was at that time, you know, still living in her place and anticipating going back to work. And she had come over to visit and I, I walked in and I said, like, so are you, you know, are you worried or how are you doing with, with all of this news? And, and she was kind of like, well, what do you mean? And it, it happened like that. Like, you know, one minute she's anticipating going back to work. She works in the travel industry. So she was anticipating heading off to Japan in a few weeks. And, and everything sort of seemed to be going in a certain direction. And then we have this one conversation and within 24 hours, it became clear like she probably wasn't going to be going back to work anytime soon. And all of a sudden, it wasn't just that, I mean, everything then changed, right? So it's like, she's not going back to work. And then the next day, or maybe it was two days later, my son's school closed. And then my other son's school closed. And within a week, our entire life was a completely different routine and a completely different, um, you know, with different rhythms and everything. And I was thinking about like just the shifting nature of things and how actually like I had all these thoughts in my mind about like, well, when is I going to go back? Or here's what we're going to do to kind of get through all of this. And all of it is sort of like either past or future and not just right now, but really like the only thing that is anything other than, you know, shifting sands and moving waves is right now. Yeah. It's hard to stay with just right now. Um, but I think that's become keenly, aw- or become more acutely aware of that. That's kind of all there is. Um,
0: what, is what, what is hard to when you say it's hard to stay with what is now? You make a good argument for the, the wisdom of staying with what's now, um, even though it's also useful to try to stick to something you were going to do. But what is hard about staying with what's now? I genuinely mean that. This is not a setup yeah. question. I wondered well, what you I, mean.
1: I think that what is hard about it is I feel, at least for me, it is because it's like uh, always new, you know, it's like what, like now is not now of the minute that I said a minute ago. And it's not the same now that it's going to be in a minute from now. Now is always moving and always changing. And so it's sort of like, I mean, I, I sort of think of it as like, um, you know, like do you remember the song from Santa Music? How do you catch a, a problem like Maria? How do you catch a cloud and pin it down? Like it's sort of a, a thing that's always moving and a thing that's not really tangible enough to sink into, you know, just right now. And yet that's what it is. That's the thing. It's the, the moment. And the moment is going to come and then it's going to go again. So I just think like keeping our minds with just, you know, I was writing actually right before this a little bit about... um about this, you know, all of the, the ideas of impermanence that I, that have been like just flowing through my mind so much. And what I came, or what I I think the best way to describe is I feel like my mind wants to go to what was as if I have some right to that because I had it or because I experienced it, that I have some right to the past. And yet the past, you know, is, is gone. It's no longer here. And then my mind wants to find something to say, well, this is what will be, or, you know, it will be so for the future, or try to create something to hold on to. And that's not now either. I mean, it's sort of ideas about it. And I might be able to influence the creation of those things. And yet, it's not what is right now. Right. And sometimes I think it's it, just these poles of the mind to the past and the future that make it difficult to see and to stay with what is actually here and now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the way when you talk, I have noticed this about you before, but your talk lends itself to musical numbers, you know, like what you just said about sound and music. I heard just heard several songs almost in what you were saying. You know, that one is perfect for this, what we're talking about. About how do you hold a moonbeam in your hands? The the (laughs) idea that these things come like that, and and then you can't hold on to them. (laughs) you can't hold on to them. It's so much more true than most other things. And so I think all the all of us who have said from the beginning of this, I can't wait till we go back to normal. It's like, an it's an idea going back to normal. I mean, there's, gonna, there's not gonna be a same normal, whatever it's gonna be, even if it looks the same, it's not gonna be the same no- normal, and it's probably not gonna look the same. And it's really like hard, and that's a painful thing. Uh, creates anxiety, like, like, and especially let's say people who have lost their work. I mean, my sister who lives in Seattle and who uh, worked at a dentist's office. um, And who lived next door almost to the very first uh, institution in this country where there were lots of deaths from COVID in Kirkland, Washington, uh, across from Seattle. I mean, she couldn't work in a dentist's office where she worked, was worked as an office manager. So that was done. That was the paycheck. That was the month. That was the week to week life, you know, so, and then she called us one before at the very beginning when I realized, Oh, this might affect my life. This isn't just something happened in a little place in Seattle. Uh, therefore affects my sister, which affects me, but no, this because she, she texted me. During When I was at a movie one Saturday night in early March, and it was just a text that said, there is no hand sanitizer in all of the state of Washington. And do you have any there in Massachusetts? If so, can you send me some? And we were in a mall where there's a movie theater. So at the movie ended right after that, we went walking around the mall and found a little place that was like a body shop or lotion and body or something that I'd never seen before. And they had one little tray that still had a few hand sanitizers (laughs) left. And I felt like a hoarder. I took 20 of them out of about 30 and they used to have hundreds and they were all gone except these last ones. And we got them, you know, and next day it was FedEx. When we saved a couple for ourselves. We're still using those two it's little sprays, but it's like, oh my God! Uh, it it it. That's when it penetrated for me, that this is, mm-hmm. uh, this is a big deal, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and it's and and still it felt like, oh well, it, that's on the west coast, you know, that's Seattle. It's not going to hit here. And then it was like New York. Oh, that's a little closer. Uh, Northern Italy. When I had a lot of friends there, it's like it's pretty far away, but you know, and then you don't get until you start thinking how thoroughly this is going to penetrate the earth and for obvious reasons that nobody can stop it except through the elimination of transmission. That is it. That is all we're stuck with. Uh, That's why everybody keeps saying the same things on television, you know, isolation, contact tracing, testing, those three things over and over. Because it's like, those are the things that allow you to, and social distancing, that that's it. You know, there's not any other major strategy. So really, it affected us all so fast. Um, I very much identify with that, um, that idea that part of what makes it difficult to cope with a pandemic is um, the fact that, uh, that where the mind goes in order to seek security is the past and, and projecting the past into the future, all of which leaves aside the present moment. Um, I mean, the idea, okay, well, it's, it was that way. I was, I'm seeing my patients and I'm gonna keep seeing my patients. No, I'm not. Oh, well, there's these two patients I am gonna keep seeing in person because they're gonna be so lonely in their lives that they have to see me. Guess what? No, I'm not. It was unbelievable to me that these last two people I was seeing out of all my practice was they were gonna not see me, which is the one human being they actually interact with in their lives. And it's like, oh my God. And so now what do we have? We have we have very a very rich Zoom relationship, as crazy as Zoom is and as flattening and two dimensional as Zoom is. It's like twice a week with one of them. You know, I go on and he goes on and there he is in the same chair, sitting down <laughs> like this. And there I am in the same place right here, sitting back, and uh, I say, here we are again. And he smiles, and we have a whole thing um, that goes on. And uh, we've tried to figure out how to make the best of it. And, And so, you know, once you accept that you now have been caught by a different wave on your surfboard or whatever it is, or you're body surfing, and you've been caught by a different wave, that it's not going to work to pretend it's the previous wave. It's not going to work to pretend that you can hold the position you were holding with the previous wave, that you're actually going to have to go with that wave, whatever that means. You're going to have to like, okay, it's going to be zoom for now. Maybe tomorrow it will be something else, Um, but it's I'm going to like zoom ahead in my relationships now much as I find it, you know, like on Monday and and Tuesday of this next week and on Thursday and Friday, I'm doing full day workshops in Sweden that we're going to be in person. And so they start at five in the morning uh, so that they are uh, because of the time difference. And I'm going to be on the screen like this all day long, you know, looking at people and looking at PowerPoint slides and showing videos. It's like, oh my God, it's going to be so hard. But you know, it's what we got. And, and what I find, Catherine, amazing is how, and even how you described within a few days, you went from one life plan to a different life plan. Your sister's coming in, your sister can't go to work, your kids can't go to school, you still have a practice, you've still got this whole thing going. And it's like, oh, my God. And it's kind of, remarkable about us that we actually do shift but it's not without some angst right you know,
1: i can i jump in charlie I, yeah, you know in that comment about like everything moving to zoom and the you know i feel like the other thing that this all highlights is just sort of the the duality or the two-sided nature of things because even with that you know i was thinking about right before we started here today you were looking at my behind me, or I I was maybe talking earlier, but I have this loom um, in my, I'm, I work now out of my craft room in the basement of my house, and I've got this loom and all my like sewing stuff down here. And there is a way that I think that as it's, it's been this adjustment where it feels it is sort of this now two-dimensional flat screen. I'm looking at my computer all day, and then there's the other side where I'm seeing into people's lives in ways that I never did before, people who, whose homes I've never seen or, you know, and I see, I learn little things about them too. And I think when, when you say like the way that somehow we do adjust and somehow we do adapt to the change as, you know, as a, as a species, you know, we figure it out. And I do think there's these subtle ways where we find something to kind of hold on to in some way that it, you know, like the making lemonade out of lemons. There's a way in which I think as separated as we are, we can also find little like doorways into understanding each other even, even a little bit differently or in a new way um, that I think is kind of incredible. I had an experience like probably, I don't know, a week or two after um, this day at home where it was started in Denver where I, I called up a friend because it was April 1st, it was her birthday. And I'm, this is a friend I almost never talked to. I mean, we talk maybe once or twice a year. And I had the experience of calling her up and thinking, I wonder what she's up to. And then realizing, I know what she's up to because it's what we're all up to. She's at home. She's not going to be having a party for her birthday. She's not going to be you know, going out on the town. She's, she's at home. That's what she's doing. And I, it was sort of this like, oh, like, no, we're, we're all going through this every one of us, you know, there's, there are, as you said, these categories, there are some who are much more impacted in really frightening ways and others who are um, more impacted in an an annoying way of like, I just, I want to be able to go out and I can't go out. And yet, even that moment of calling her up and thinking, oh, we're we're both, yeah, I know what she's doing, because we're both doing the same thing, it was pretty amazing to me. It's it's true. For the first time, and maybe one of the only times in my life that I'll be having an experience like that where I just kind of can know, you know, that we're in it together in that way.
0: I know, it's that is really remarkable. Yeah, everybody is just kind of there at home, and you know, they're, and if you make some guesses, you're often right. You say, have you been baking bread, you know? Have you been starting a vegetable garden? Have you been uh, weaving? Have you been starting a new craft? Hey, did you take up an old musical instrument? It's like, I mean, are you sticking with an exercise regime, but actually you can't? I mean, it's like, did you get out your treadmill, but you can't get yourself to get on it? It's like so many people I've talked to that this is where, and, and there I was, I was interviewed today uh, as part of a, a, a doctoral student Uh, who's doing her dissertation on uh, on what do DBT teams do when there's been somebody who committed suicide within their team, I mean, within a a client in their team. And so she's trying to come up, and it turns out there's very little written about that in DBT. There's a ton on what do you do before suicide and to prevent suicide and protocols to manage the risk and everything. But there's very little, like a paragraph here and there. So she's doing a very valuable project. And then, so she, her project is to interview people who've been in those situations. And so I was one of those people. And so we had like an hour interview, just wide ranging discussion. And And she said at the end, she said, I am so grateful for the pandemic from this one point of view is that everybody I have asked to interview is just sitting at home, you know, and it's sort of like, I've been able, like everyone in the field that I ask says, yeah, I'll do it. it's like, that never happens. And it's really true. So there are these moments that this works because we're all doing something like the same thing. and I've had a couple patients that are very lonely that had an interesting reaction to this where they said from early on, uh, this one woman that I treat who's very alone um, and uh, her mood problem has made it impossible to get out there, now she can't go out there uh, in places that she thought she should go out there but couldn't get herself to go out there and she feels better because she feels like everybody's stuck at home. So she's actually not as, not as alone anymore. She's joined the world, or the world has joined her, by everybody mm-hmm. staying at home and not going out and socializing. And so she feels like, ha, yeah, okay, I'm now closer to people. It's interesting, you know, really so different for different people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now I find from a DBT principle-based perspective, that um, I think we've been in a way talking and the way you put everything, a lot about willingness, Uh, the principle of willingness, the skill of willingness, of leaning into and accepting the cards that you've been dealt in the moment. Uh, Not the cards you wish you were dealt, uh, not the cards that you weren't dealt, uh, but actually the cards you were dealt and then looking at them and saying, okay, so I'm home. Okay, my children still need to get an education. Okay, I still need to do some of my work. Okay, I'm now um, more responsible for taking care of everything in my house. and, And I'm going back and forth between work and home in the same room. And it's like, you know, okay, to toss away the attachment to things shouldn't be this way is a very helpful thing that one can do in for moments and then maybe over time and more I don't know it just requires it's like that in dbt like that concept of willing hands it's like okay okay all right I'll go with that okay I guess that's the way it is I'll go with it and I'll actually go with it willingly that this is the nature of reality now and it wasn't yesterday and making that switch is so hard but it can happen And and the more you can lean into it, the more you think, okay, yep. A week ago, I was doing this with my life. Now I'm doing about 5,000 different things. I have a different sleep cycle, a different nutritional status, a different exercise cycle, different relationships, different children, different spouse, different dogs and cats. It's like incredible. But But if you can do that, it's like landing on another planet every day and adjusting to that planet. And um, so I think it's willingness. I think you're right. You know,
1: Charlie, it's funny that you say it, because I was thinking I had a whole conversation about willingness with someone this morning and the difference we were kind of talking about willingness versus opposite action or, um, you know, because in some ways I was thinking of them as one and the same. So I, for those that are familiar with opposite action, the skill in DBT is, you know, to act opposite to an emotional urge to change the emotion. As you're talking, Charlie, I'm sitting here like nodding along and thinking who is a better example in in my life right now of willingness than my sister like she I mean her her career, you know, based entirely on travel is just who knows when it's going to come back around and then she's come here to help us right she's like moved in she's taking care of our kids helping with I mean she's really doing like the lion's share of of, um, homeschool, because I'm still working, my husband's working, but we're both working from home. And, and the, I feel like, as you say, willingness is not just, it's not just doing what's needed. I mean, it's doing what's needed, but it is doing it with a particular posture and a particular, um, I sort of, I think like a, a a relaxed stance or a a fluidness Mm. that allows one to actually um, really be all in, in a unique way. And it's funny, because when, when this all first happened, I was kind of, I, t- I think I told her, I don't know if I told her, but she's listening. So maybe she'll hear it now that, you know, I felt like, I was like, I don't think you know the skill of opposite action, but that's what you're doing. It's like, you're just kind of throwing yourself all in a hundred percent, even though it's, you know, it's heartbreaking that you can't go to work, but you know, you're here and you're doing, um, you know, you're doing life here with us. And, and it seemed, you know, I think it was a good thing for both of us. Like, you know, now it's like, is the opposite action? Is it willingness? Or I think it's both. I mean, it's that's that particular stance of sort of letting go of attachment to what you, what you imagined, what you, you know, the, the ideas that you had about what life was or would be, or how you would go. And then, seeing what the path actually is <laughs> and not just seeing what it is and walking it, but walking it as if it's, you know, where you were meant to walk in a, in a way that you're embracing it as it is your path, you know, it's sort of a different stance.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think through from the point of view of opposite action, which actually in the last podcast I talked about a certain amount, um, the, to me what it would be is the opposite action to the emotion of resentment uh, or something like that. Like you could imagine resenting what, what's going on and resenting what you have to do and resenting that your livelihood is being altered and maybe changed for a long time. And and then you and and so you can be bitter about that. But it's like acting opposite bitterness by saying, you know what, I'll move into my sister's house and I'll look after her children in homeschooling and I'll lean into it. And now that's my new job. You know, and that's what I'll do. And there's something about that that's unbelievably generous. Um, and, 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 and however she made that pivot, but it really is making a pivot into the wind and, and then saying, okay, if that's the way things are going, I'm going there, you know. And that's the, the, the metaphor of surfing in life. Uh, which is an unfortunate metaphor for me because the only time I tried, I could never stand up for more than about one second. And I remember doing this on the on the coast, <laughs> and my two boys just getting up and surfing along, and their dad getting up and falling down a million times. And you know, I am a relentless trier, but I couldn't do it. But but when pe- but the metaphor of surfing, which means I don't have to do it, but as a metaphor, it really works because it's like you you can't dictate the next wave. And if you try to surf the way you did the last wave, it's not gonna work for the next wave, especially if it's an unusual wave like this pandemic. This pandemic is like a once in a century wave. And, And all of us know that from one particular angle, but it's unbelievable when you add up the billions of people and how everyone is having to surf a new wave and that people in countries across the globe are doing stuff that we're doing. So not only when you say this, does it happen to be that I'm at home while you're home, and so are other people you know, but there's also people in Northern Italy who are home while you're home. People that I've known when I've been training and I've been in contact with, like they're home too. And they're not visiting their parents either because they don't want to infect their parents. And they're bringing food to the doorstep of their parents and then stepping back to the street and texting them and saying, there is food on the porch now. And that's happening in India and it's happening in Greece. It's like, there's something about this that as as awful as some aspects of this are, there's been a unifying theme. So people are sharing a certain number of common experiences in different cultures and in different ways and with different levels of um, resources. And that's the other thing I wanted to say. Another sort of, um, there's nothing new under the sun about this. Well, one thing I realized is actually, all of this, what's happening with the pandemic, the kind of things we're talking about, are things that are absolutely common to uh, daily life. We just don't, they just don't usually don't have this magnitude. Uh, But things are different. You know, when people say, when I say to people, how are you? And they say, oh, same old, same old. I know that's not true. I hear that. And I know it's not true. What I say to different people depends on the person, but it's never true. But this is now really not same old, same old. Oh, just another pandemic. No, sorry. That's not really what's going on. Um, so it's, so that's one thing, but this other thing that is, is always true. And now it's magnified. It's always true, but now it's in the spotlight is the level of inequality between people within our society is stunning and awful and makes me almost want to cry even as I say it, because, um, and this is a, puts a glaring light. There are the people like me who actually, even though I'm hamstrung in some ways in my work and in my personal life and where I'm going and can't travel and all this stuff, in a way, big deal by comparison to the person who lives in a single apartment and who now can't afford food and who now can't walk out of their apartment without being in another enclosed space with other people who might have the virus. It's like oh my god or to people like i i have a f- close friend in vermont who just adopted or took over the foster care of two 7-year-old girls and just started that like first week of march and then boom there they are. I mean she's homeschooling them and living with them 24 hours a day and totally and she's a biologist in the state of uh, of uh, Vermont, studies bats. Actually, she's a researcher on bats and presents internationally on bats. And you know, she knows all about this virus stuff, but it's like, oh my God, such changes. And, and she, she has some more, more resources than some, but you know, the vast majority of people are not in that 1% or even 5% or even 30% or by definition, they're not in the top 49%. I mean, and if you're below the top 49%, you know, this is hitting you in a very different way. And it's just disturbing. You know, it's just disturbing. And just to know it and to feel impotent about it, even if you're making some inroads or you're doing something personally, there's still none that the economic structuring of our country and our economy is so disturbing to me. I mean, I mean this brings... Usually, I don't get political in these podcasts, uh, not for any other reason other than usually I'm thinking about other things, but I'm just uh, I'm just bullshit about what decisions have been made in the last 30 or 40 years uh, that have led up to this moment, and now this really is going to kill people as a result of that. Um, the inequity is terrible. So... Um, and the management of this has been so terrible that then I get really angry and have to regulate those emotions. As some of my patients do, if they even watch television for one minute, they might end up in a hospital. Literally, I have two people like that. And uh, I won't end up in a hospital, but, I, but my next five conversations might not be very pleasant. Uh, I might not be very pleasant about it. So, you know, the pandemic is affecting that because it it shines a spotlight on inequities. You know, it's like when the flood comes and all the people go under who don't have resources. Um, so that, that's disturbing to me, and it's uh, certainly not a profound insight. Um, in fact, let me just say that nothing I said in this is a profound insight. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not like I'm distinguishing it <laughs> from anything else I said because ever since I've truly taken in this notion that everything I say is actually in some ways just recycling. It's repackaging of things that have been going on and being said for a long time, but in my own style, but even my style is adopted from other people's styles. So, you know, but still, I think I'm still appreciate being able to talk with you about this. Um, yeah, I, I,
1: if I may add something, I think I am. Um, Cedar Chris did a, a blog post a while back about, being vigilant in the darkness and she was talking about, um, you know, is essentially this, like kind of the way that the pandemic has brought to um, brought more to light, uh, things that have been there all along, these um, um, inequalities and such. And her point was really um, to pay attention to what's happening as far as like elections and your voting capacities and things like that. And I think for me, I've been thinking a lot back to this um, concept of impermanence, like it's not just the attachment to what was and, you know, thinking, you know, I want to keep what was or, or my mind going back to the past, but also this awareness that our our ideas about the future, often it's in the form of like taking for granted what we think will come about or taking for granted our, our, um, the, the sort of, routines, or there's a different word I'm looking for, but the um, the practices that we just assume will happen and that will potentially, you know, help make things better or potentially, um, you know, bring about change or things like that. But we have to really pay attention because we don't know how, you know, all of this is going to keep affecting, um, you know, our society or those that, you know, make decisions. And we really have to pay attention. And I think I think there's something really good about change when it has the effect of helping us pay more attention and bringing us, sort of awakening us to those things. And I mean, I think it's been happening over time, but for sure, um, there's an acuteness to it right now where people are much more alert, um, or hopefully, I think they are.
0: I (laughs) I think people are alert to very different things right now, but there is a heightened sense of uh, of awareness of things i mean it does yeah. remind me of this being aware and alert i mean there was a there was a set there was a meta analysis in Chicago many years ago looking at uh, which neighborhoods in the Chicago area are uh, subject to the most uh, violence uh, and uh, and they looked at they categorized lots of neighborhoods, characterize them then went around and studied these different neighborhoods to look at what are the characteristics. And you would think, well, socioeconomics will be an important factor. It's one factor, but it wasn't the single most important factor that predicted which neighborhoods would have more violence. You know, the neighborhoods that had less violence, more than anything else tended to be neighborhoods in which people knew each other's children. Like, you know the children of the people down the block. And therefore there's almost like a, a camaraderie among parents And an awareness among parents of what else is going on in the neighborhood and what are the other kids doing and it gave a a certain way uh, different parents would have therefore a sort of more of a sense of accountability responsibility and authority when it came to somebody else's 11 year old that's hanging out doing something not very helpful so I thought that was really interesting because I just assumed other factors would be overwhelmingly the factors, but that's a big factor and it's affected me ever since I learned that little piece of research. It's affected me in just thinking how you know the people down the block, in my case from where I live and, and where I work uh, in Northampton. It's like, okay, it's good for me to know who's at, who works at CVS drugstore. It's good for me to know who's at Brueger's Bagels, where I get my coffee, you know, and it's good for me to know what's going on at that Chinese restaurant in the other direction and the pizza guy down the road. And there's this sense of security and an awareness that comes from, oh, you go in somewhere and, and you notice that somebody's missing, you know, and you ask about them. It's just that little moment. It's just one ripple effect. Uh, that if you ask about that, people then think, oh, Charlie knows who was in here and noticed, and which no one ever comments. So it's, it's more difficult in my solo private practice. No one ever comes in from these <laughs> uh, from these organizations and says, hey, doc, can I have a session? Um, you know, but sometimes I think about putting just a little table out on the sidewalk and say, you know, t- psychiatric consultation, five cents. <laughs>
1: you
0: know, and then literally do some consultations to some homeless people, which are happened to be in front of my office, (laughs) you know, so, um, and what what impact that would make. Um, So I like what, I like what you say about this because there is a kind of um, the more you pay attention, I think, to what is happening in these realms about the waves that are coming and realize that actually much as you may think you can make a small input in it, you know, that willingness would be to say, yeah, write a letter to the editor, Uh, vote, Um, get other people to vote, talk with people about it. Actually, all of these little things that people like uh, Obama say, that's what you should do with your feelings and thoughts about, you know, and and think, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I I think that that goes along with these sort of principles of, of impermanence, and interdependency and dialectics, where you're really sort of like going ahead and playing a role, even if it provokes op- opposition or it's in, a, in an oppositional environment, that you are putting yourself in that, knowing that there'll be backlash, you know, and things like that. Sort of like, yeah, play, yeah, jump in. You get one chance to live, as far as we know. So, who knows? Most cultures in history have not thought that. So who knows what's the truth? But our little culture is convinced that you have one chance to live. Um, so I'll go with that at the moment. <laughs> Seems like the safest um, bet.
1: <laughs> at least one that you're aware of. So.
0: Yeah, at least you're aware of that. Aware of this present moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me. You know, I don't know, Catherine, if you ever listened to the podcast I did where I told the story about my friend Cindy, that in the first podcast, I said this was a tribute to her from the beginning, three years ago. And, um, you know, I I still go back, even though she's dead from Earth, I still go back and have conversations with her. And it's been uh, 17 years. And I've talked with her about the pandemic, because when you ask somebody who's dead... (laughs) What do you think of the pandemic, they have a very different perspective than we have on the pandemic, you know, after death is a very different time to think about things than before death. It's like death looks different to you. First of all, it looks inevitable. And it looks like your point of view about death is, of course. Right. Oh, and you died 10 years earlier than you should have. Of course. I mean, she died a lot of years before she should have, and you know, so there's kind of like, communicating with a dead person really helps you increase acceptance of things, because when you get that, tell them, I'm really upset about what happened, they just listen. Say, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, that's bad, isn't it? Ah, well, all things pass. It's like, and they know know that in a way, so. You know, I've already prepared to talk to dead people when I'm dead, but I'm already talking to dead people when I'm alive because it actually helps increase wisdom, I think, when you talk to a dead person, even if it's a person that you imagine you're talking to. The part of you that can identify with dead people uh, gives you answers. I highly recommend it, you know, as a therapy. Yeah, sit and, and add a third chair to the session and talk to your dead self, you know. Uh, 20 years forward or something helps you get into the present moment. Hey, look, um, gosh, and it's my favorite radio people click and clack the the car talk guys ended every show with, uh, well, now you've killed another perfectly good hour of your life listening to us. And so I Mm -hmm. guess that's what's happened again. Anyone who did last to the end of this, I really appreciate talking to you. Look forward to doing it again it's just like we sort of have this ability to go back and forth that i really appreciate you know building on each other's thoughts um i like that
1: i and, agree yeah i feel the same
0: and I, cool. you brought you brought, you, relatives, you brought relatives along too you brought a whole bleacher section you know your sister you said and uh, anyone else from your family? So. Yeah, my
1: my husband's on as well. Oh, like, yeah. my Oh, there she is.
0: Oh, there she is. Yeah, she was like,
1: there for a second.
0: And like I said, you know, my wife hears enough from me in the house, so I don't think she would add to that by the end of the podcast, <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> you can be in well, another room and listen to the podcast and not know it.
1: I, can I say one more thing as we end here? I, you know, thinking about the one of the things that's been highlighted for me here for sure in this whole experience is this dichotomy or I guess I don't know if it's quite the right word but on one hand like becoming super aware of my interactions with other people and keeping my distance and then also how important my relationships are and how important connection and human connection is and it's so funny because I've always you know I've done a lot of different work online over the years I mean for best past five or six years, wow. a large part of my work week is online. And and so I'm used to the, you know, seeing people through the screen saying hi and saying goodbye. And yeah, I always have this little urge, like I just want to give everybody a hug and, you know, and, and all of the the goodbyes that are a little bit more physical and close and, um, and it's always a little bittersweet. But thank you for having me, Charlie. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to Converse with you in person because I I converse with you in my head all the time.
0: But isn't it funny how we now re- have redefined what it means to be in person? Yeah, <laughs> yes. well, you know. So that is true. Hug, hug. Yes,
1: yes hug,
0: <laughs> hug. <laughs> be well, all, right. all. So everybody who's uh, listening now, or in the future, or from the past, you know, we'll say goodbye. And uh, I do not, I do not anticipate doing a podcast next week because I'll be immersed as I said in those workshops that I'm doing online uh, during next week and I'm going to be exhausted uh, when you start them at five in the morning because of the time difference it's just I'm going to have to sleep in the afternoons (laughs) so bye Catherine thank you bye Charlie thank you bye all bye all